Revelation chapter 19. We'll be picking it up in verse 10. And I got a lot of ground to cover, so as you're making your way there, I'm going to start with my introduction. And by way of introduction, what I'd like to do is kind of take a look at a current event. And in order for you to really appreciate the current event that I'm going to tell you about, it has a backstory. So let me start with that. The backstory is this uh, last year, uh, a controversy arose at Wheaton College. Wheaton is a, is a Christian college um, in Illinois, just outside of Chicago. Um, and uh, they have a, or had, past tense I should say, and I'll explain to you why, a political science professor there, this gal, uh, wore a hijab, 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 how do you pronounce it, anybody? Anyway, the, the headscarf, you know, the, that thing. Um, she wore a Muslim headscarf in solidarity with Muslims, no problem, except for on her Facebook page, she wrote why. She said, I stand in religious solidarity with Muslims because they, like Christians, are people of the book, and as Pope Francis has stated, we worship the same God, end quote. Now, <clears throat> her assertion is wrong, and it is profoundly unbiblical. We need to understand that, because Muslims, they in fact do not worship the same God that Christians worship. Um, they deny the deity of Jesus Christ. That biblically is a problem because Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except by me. Jesus goes on to describe himself in terms where he and God are synonymous because, in fact, they are. And so, unsurprisingly, when you have somebody who professes to be a Christian teaching at a Christian university saying that Muslims, like Christians, are people of the book and worship the same God, there are going to be those that step up and vocally disagree. And in fact, there were firestorm of people disagreeing. One of the people who disagreed was a Wheaton alumni by the name of Russell Vogt. Now, Russell Vogt was quoted in their paper and in other publications since. Here's what he said, quote, <clears throat> excuse me, having a deficient theology of God does not mean that you are in an actual prayerful and faithful relationship with God. Muslims do not simply have a deficient theology. They do not know God because they have rejected Jesus Christ, his son, and they stand condemned. End quote. Now that sounds harsh until you consider that he's just quoting the words of Jesus Christ. Listen to what Jesus Christ said. He was approached by Nicodemus, one of the members of the Sanhedrin. Nicodemus came to him at night and basically said, look, nobody could do the things they're doing except for their God. So <laughs> what's up, dude? And Jesus responds to Nicodemus and he says this, for God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever should believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. For, Jesus continues, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. What Jesus is conveying here is that, listen, God loves men and women, desperately wants them to be saved, and so what does he do? He sends Jesus Christ to die on the cross for the sins of mankind, because the wages of sin is death, the Bible says, and all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, the Bible says, and so somebody had to die, and God sent his son to die, and that's what Jesus is reiterating here. God didn't send his son to, into the world to condemn the world. 
No, but that through him he might be, the world might be saved. And then listen, he continues, and here's the key. He who believes in him, in Jesus Christ, is not condemned, Jesus said, but he who, do, he who believes in Jesus Christ is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Jesus said, whoever doesn't believe in him as Savior, as Lord, is condemned. These are Jesus' words. Well, in April, this man, Russell Vogt, who, who penned these words, who, who penned these words to the paper, well, he was nominated to serve in a federal department, in the federal, as the federal deputy director of the Office of Management and Budget. And so this is a position that requires a Senate confirmation hearing. And this confirmation hearing happened last week, and you may have seen it in the newspapers. Two U.S. senators stood up arguing in this confirmation hearing that because he believes that Jesus is the only way to salvation, he is, in fact, Islamophobic and not fit for public office. One of the senators said this, quote, I think it's irrefutable that these kinds of comments are a violation of public trust, end quote, these kind of comments. What kind of comments? Quoting Jesus Christ. He considers it to be a violation of public trust. Listen to what this other senator said. I won't tell you his name, but it rhymes with Bernie Sanders. And he said this. Now, this is not Republican-Democrat. Bear, bear me out. Maybe, maybe you're a Bernie Sanders fan or whatever. Hear me out, okay? Don't, don't, don't send the hate mail yet. But here's what he said. In my view, the statement made by Mr. Vote that statement quoting Jesus Christ, is indefensible, it is hateful, it is Islamophobic, and it is an insult. This nominee is really not someone who is what this country is supposed to be about, end quote. Now understand, this isn't a Republican thing, it's not a, it's not a Democrat thing, it's a Christian thing. What's happening here, make no mistake about it, when people stand up and say that Christians are not fit for public office because of the, the doctrine that they hold, we need, to take, we need to pay attention to that. This is the first time in the history of the United States that a person's Christian faith has been cited in a confirmation hearing as a reason for exclusion from public service. First time it's happened. And, and I tell you that story not to, you know, Republican, Democrat, nothing of that sort. It's to, it's to illustrate the most recent example of the times that we live in. We live in a time right now when there are a number of people who are, in fact, anti-Christ. There are people who are opposed to Jesus, to the things of Jesus, and now he is Islamophobic. He is homophobic. He is, put the insert to whatever it is, the words of Jesus inciting hate, and now even for the first time entering into our U.S. government and being something, by the way, it's unconstitutional what was said, to use that as a litmus test for the position, to say it's a violation of public trust when a person expresses their faith, nevertheless it's being done. And so what we, what we have, listen, we got to understand this is a sign of our times and a day is coming when it's not just going to be two senators, it's going to be the whole world. By the way, just to say it's not two senators, it's not lost on me that one of them very nearly came to be the Democratic nominee for president. So these aren't just random people. This guy very nearly ran for president and had he run for president, he probably would have won. 
So, so this, is, this is the move of our nation, but, it's, but our world is going in this direction. And we need to understand that Babylon that we're looking at here, the, it's the kingdom of Antichrist. It, it was exactly that kind of government. And this is kind of where we're going as a world. The days are coming when it's not just going to be, oh, Christianity is going to keep you out of public office. No, the day is coming when Christianity is going to cost you your life. And we're moving in that direction. And so here in Revelation 19, we're in the home stretch of the book of Revelation. Uh, Babylon, the kingdom of Antichrist, it's, it's, it's exactly this kind of government that we're talking about. Well, it went on for seven years, and then, hey, Jesus had enough of that nonsense. He put an end to it. And so here now in chapter 19, Babylon, the city, has been defeated, and now the armies of the world are gathering at Armageddon for the great and final battle. We're going to look at that today, the final battle of Armageddon. Last week, we saw the great multitude praising God for his righteous judgment of Babylon and also for the righteous return of, of Christ with his bride. And we pick it up now in verse 10, and, and John says this, and I fell at his feet. He's talking about this angel. And he says, I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, see that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony, here it is, of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. What does he mean by that? Well, the idea that's being, that's, that, that's being imparted here is that biblical prophecy centers around the person and the work of Jesus Christ. The Bible says this about prophecy. It says that prophecy, Peter speaking, 2 Peter uh, chapter 1, prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. In other words, it wasn't just, you know, like some old fire captain of mine said to me one day, he's like, you know, I'm, I'm quoting scripture to him, and he says, well, you know who wrote the Bible, right? And I'm like, well, you're going to say men wrote the Bible. Uh-huh, men wrote the Bible. It's subject to, to interpretation and opinion, and it's just one man's opinion. And I'm like, no, you don't get it. God wrote the Bible. And that's what Peter is saying here about prophecy, that, that, that prophecy wasn't some guy's bright idea about what was going to happen in the future, some guy's speculation. No, it is, in fact, the words of God. And that fact is proven by fulfilled prophecy. There are hundreds of biblical prophecies that have been fulfilled with 100% accuracy. God speaks to us through the prophet Isaiah. He says this, Only I can tell you the future before it ever happens. Everything I plan will come to pass, for I do whatever I wish. God's Plain words here. God's like, who else can tell you what he's going to do before he does it? I do. And, by the way, the Bible has prophecy fulfilled in an, in, a, in an overwhelming amount, over 300 prophecies about Jesus Christ, his birth and his first coming were made and have been fulfilled. 100% accurate, those prophecies about Jesus Christ and his first coming being fulfilled. 300 of them. By the way, you know, somebody goes, oh, well, God got lucky. Right, God got lucky. I mean, he wrote it down and, you know, the man wrote the Bible. Yeah, this stuff talked about the first coming of Christ, but... You know, whatever, they got lucky. No, 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 that's a mathematical impossibility. As I told you, there's over 300 prophecies about Jesus and his first coming that were made hundreds of years before he ever came that came true. 
If only 18 of those prophecies had been fulfilled, mathematically, if you wanted to say, uh, he got lucky, it just happened by chance. Mathematically, the number, of if it, would, if it just happened by random chance, the number is so large you have to describe it in physical terms to get somebody, you can't just give the number to appreciate it. So the number, if only 18 were correct, is, is answered this way. You've got to fill up Texas a foot deep with silver dollars, paint one red, and randomly pick one out. That's the statistical number if, if God got lucky and just got 18 out of 300 right. He got 300 right, plus. What's that number? Well, it's so big, there's not enough molecules in the universe to equate to that number. So, so God proves himself, he proves who he is, by doing the ultimate Babe Ruth. He stands at home plate, points to the outfield, says, I'm going to hit a home run, and then he does it 300 plus times. So, so God proves himself through prophecy, but the Bible also contains prophecies that are yet to be fulfilled, that are still in the future, and there are over 2,100 prophecies about the second coming of Jesus Christ. There's over 1,800 prophecies in the Old Testament, 300 plus in the New Testament about the second coming of Christ. In fact, and this blew me away, one out of every 25 verses in the New Testament refers to the second coming of Jesus Christ. Did you know that? Jesus wants you to know that he's coming back. He wants you to know that it's going to happen, that you can take it to the bank. And here's why the second coming of Jesus Christ is so important. I'll just throw it out here right now, and we'll get into it more in just a minute. Because when Jesus comes in his second coming, if you haven't surrendered your life to the Lord Jesus Christ, he's coming to kill you. That's the truth. We're going to look at that. And so, so God wants everybody to know Jesus is coming back. And if you have not surrendered your life to the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus is coming back in his second coming to slaughter. In John's gospel, Jesus himself promised, listen, in my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again to receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. This is a promise to the believers and a promise to, hey, you know, I'm, I'm going, I'm, I'm dying, I've, I've come, I'm gonna come again, receive you to myself, I'm gonna take you to where I am, to, to where I am. And then what we're gonna see today is what happens after that, after he's taken the church to be with him in heaven, he's going to return with his church. And, and this is Jesus' promise. He says, I will not abandon you as orphans. I'm going to come to you. Right? But the big idea today is the fulfillment of God's promise in the second coming of Jesus Christ. And we're going to look at three things as we continue. We're going to look at Jesus the conqueror. We're going to look at Jesus' conquests. And we're going to look at Jesus' companions. Verse 11 now I, John says, saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. There are two times that the door of heaven opens up. We saw back in Revelation chapter 4, the first time the door of heaven opens, that's to receive the church up into heaven, the rapture of the church. That's when the church goes into heaven. And then here in chapter 19 is when the door of heaven opened up again, and it opens up again to let the church out of heaven where the church comes back with Jesus Christ in his second coming. And we're going to join him in his millennial reign, and we're going to look more on that as, as, as we continue into the latter chapters. But the focus right now is on Jesus the conqueror, and, and what, what, we can, what we can see here, it's, again, revelation. It's the unveiling of Jesus Christ, right? That's what revelation means. It means unveiling. 
And, and really what we have here in chapter 19 is the ultimate revelation of Jesus Christ in his second coming. Right? This is the ultimate revelation. Everything in history has been leading up to this. And what we have is Jesus' triumphant return in power and in glory with his church. And the first time Jesus came in his first coming, he came as a suffering servant. But what we see here is that Jesus returns as a conquering king. And that's what we see here. We see him come, uh, the heaven opened up, Jesus coming, and he, and he comes on a white horse. Conquering king. Uh, remember when Jesus came into Jerusalem in his first coming, he also rode something into Jerusalem. Does anybody remember what it, that was? He rode a donkey. That's what he rode into Jerusalem. And that was a fulfillment of prophecy, by the way. The, the, the prophet Zechariah in Zechariah 9, 9 said, Rejoice, O people of Zion. Shout in triumph, O people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He's righteous and victorious. Yet he is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. So in his first coming, Jesus came as the suffering servant. He rode in on a donkey's colt. But now, he's not coming as a suffering servant. He's coming as a conquering king. So what is he riding? He rides in this white horse. And, and, and this, this horse, you, you got to understand, in biblical times, especially in Israel... Most soldiers were foot soldiers. And so for somebody to have a horse and ride a horse into battle, it represented not just a significant advantage, but it also spoke of honor and power and, and prestige and speed and all of these things that are so critical in, in, in warfare and so on. And also the fact that it's white, it speaks of purity. And what the text makes clear here is that the one sitting on this horse is both faithful and true. Here's the significance of that. Remember, this is in contrast to the Antichrist, to the beast that has been in power. And who was the Antichrist? Who was the beast? He was unfaithful and he was deceitful. And so in contrast to that, Jesus is not unfaithful, he is faithful. He's not deceitful, no, he is truth. And so he comes as this conquering king, faithful and true, and being faithful and true, that means that Jesus is going to be faithful to judge all sin and all unrighteousness. Listen to what Paul said to the Romans. He said, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So rather than it being that way, what happens? Jesus says, look, I'm going to come as the conquering king and I'm going to, I'm going to deal with those who suppress the truth in unrighteousness and so I, in righteousness and truth, am going to show up. And that's exactly what we see in the following verses. Continuing in verse 12, it tells us there, his eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. And now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and the wrath 
of Almighty God. And he had on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Charles Spurgeon said that Jesus' eyes here are like a flame of fire for the purpose and intent to read us through and through and to know us to our innermost soul. It's consistent with what the psalmist said. Listen to what the psalmist said. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all of my ways. For there is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. Jesus knows you better than you know yourself. There is nothing getting by God. There is nothing go, you know, that you can put over on God. Oftentimes, prior to preaching a message, I'll preach, Lord, search us and know us. And, and then I'm quick to say, Lord, give us the faith to pray that prayer. Why do I say that? Because there's this trepidatious part of, our, of us that, that is afraid to invite the Lord to search us and know us. Why? Well, because we know that if God searches us and truly knows our heart of hearts, well, we know what he's going to find, don't we? In fact, we don't really even know everything that the, that the Lord will find. This is what it means that, that you know, the, the Lord, uh, he, he, he knows our sin to, to the core. He knows every last part of us, right? And, and you know, the, 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 his being able to search us is beyond our imagination. It, it is, uh, he knows us better than we know ourselves, and, and so this, this idea of God searching me, of God knowing me, of God being able to, you know, to try my thoughts and everything, sometimes it's disconcerting to pray that, but the fact is, he already does. He, he already knows every last part of you. And, and so the, the fact of the matter is, is that when Jesus shows up, his eyes are like a flame of fire. He knows everything. And, and if I can just interrupt myself here for a minute and just say, a lot of people have got this picture of Jesus that, you know, he's, he's this dude with long hair and a peace sign and sandals and he's got the lamb and, and his thing is all about, hey dude, pre- peace, it's cool, you know. And they have this vision of Jesus like he's, he's just laid back and chill and, and me and my homeboy Jesus, everything's cool kind of thing. Why? Well, because Jesus came as a suffering servant. He came to forgive and to cleanse of sin. We have this picture of the person caught in adultery, thrown at his feet, and, and he asked the woman, woman, where are your accusers? Because their accusers bringing her in are, are like, hey, the law says we should stone her. What do you say? And we, have, and we see Jesus kneeling down. And he says, woman, where are your, your accusers? And she says, they've all gone. And he says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. And so we get this sort of lackadaisical kind of picture like, oh, Jesus is all easy breezy, man. He's cool. And, and you know, I can you know, just sin and sweep my sin under the Jesus rug and everything's cool and kosher and all that. Listen, suffering servant, yes. 
Here to save sinners? Yes. Giving his grace? Yes. God desiring that none should perish, but all that should come to everlasting life? Yes. He's long-suffering all day long. Doesn't want you to go to hell. Begs you to repent. We see it through the book of Revelation over and over and over again. Even after God takes his church out and says, I'm going to take my church up to heaven. I'm going to rapture my church. Now my wrath is going to come out, on, out upon earth. And even then... Wrath upon wrath upon wrath and grace upon grace upon grace and people coming to to repenting, saving knowledge of Christ. Why? Because that's the person of God. That's the nature of God. But the second coming of Christ, it is all done. And what we have in the second coming of Christ is we have him coming to pour out his wrath upon mankind and his eyes are like a flame of fire. And what that means is he can, he can know you to your inmost soul. And so when he shows up here and starts swinging an axe and killing people left and right, there's nobody that's going to be able to say, well, that's not Jesus. That's not cool. What happened to the dude with the lamb and the peace sign? He gave all of the chances out and now he's coming to judge because there ain't nobody left but those who have completely hardened their heart and said, all right, I'm, I'm going to live the way I want to live. And so his eyes are like a flame of fire. On his head are many crowns. What does that mean? Well, listen, the last time we saw Jesus was the suffering servant. And on, what, did, what was the last crown that Jesus wore on earth? It's a crown of thorns. It was the suffering servant. Now he's got on his head crowns. The word is diadem. It's the crown of royalty and authority. And in fact, there are many of these crowns. It's the picture of Jesus being the ultimate royal authority, ultimate power. And it's the visible manifestation, listen, of what's written on his thigh. What's written on his thigh? King of kings, Lord of lords. What's he got on his head? The crown that a king is going to wear. It's an expression of his unlimited sovereignty. And makes no mistake, listen, in his second coming, he's not coming as a slaughtered lamb. He's coming to slaughter. Notice in verse 13, he was clothed with a robe dipped in blood. Do you see that? Now, we automatically think, we think of Jesus in a robe dipped in blood. Whose blood are you thinking it is? We think of Jesus, right? He he was the lamb that was slain, takes away the sins of the world. This is his blood. This is the blood of the lamb that takes away the sins of the world. Yeah, you might think that, but you know, in context, I'm more persuaded that what is the, the blood on his robe is the blood of his enemies. Listen to the prophet Isaiah. You tell me if this doesn't sound familiar. Isaiah says this, Who is this who comes from Edom, from the city of Basra, with his clothing stained red, who is this in royal robes marching in his great strength? It is I, the Lord, announcing your salvation. It is I, the Lord, who has the power to save. Why are your clothes so red if you have been, as if you've been treading out grapes? Listen to God's response. I have been treading the winepress alone. No one was there to help me. In my anger, I've trampled my enemies as if they were grapes. In my fury, I've trampled my foes. Their blood has stained my clothes. For the time has come for me to avenge my people, to ransom them from their oppressors. I was amazed to see that no one intervened to help the oppressed, So I myself stepped in to save them with my strong arm and my wrath sustained me. I crushed 
the nations in my anger and made them stagger and fall to the ground, spilling their blood upon the earth. Now hold that thought. That's Jesus the conqueror. Now let's see Jesus' conquests. Verse 17 as we continue. John says, Then I saw an angel standing in the sun. And he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free, slave, both small and great. Notice the emphasis on flesh there. Get it. The idea is there ain't nothing of the spirit here. This is all the judgment of God upon the flesh of the earth. Verse 19, And I saw the beast... The kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. This is the battle of Armageddon. Then the beast was captured and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Now here's what we see here. We see the slaughter that's going to take place at Armageddon at Jesus' second coming. There is going to be a great slaughter, and what John sees here is this angel basically is ringing the dinner bell, ding, 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 and telling all the birds of the flesh, it's dinner time. Okay, and, and we got to understand this is the second of two great suppers that we see in Revelation 19. If you were here last week, you saw the first supper, the marriage supper of the Lamb. What do we have here? We have the judgment supper of God. What does this all mean? Here's what it means. If you're sitting here and you're going, okay, great. Once again, we're looking at this thing that's going to happen at Jesus' second coming. I, you know, I... Well, What's the big deal with me? What should I pay attention to here? Here's what you ought to know. The contrast, the marriage supper of the Lamb versus this, this, this uh, judgment supper of God. Here's your question. Do you want to eat dinner or do you want to be eaten for dinner? Okay? Do you want to be the main guest or you do, do you want to be the main course? That's the question here. Because, they're, they're, because it's one of two. You're either the, the main guest... Or you're, the, or you're the main course. And what we're looking at here is the, is the judgment supper of God. And, and so the, 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 God's not a respecter of persons, by the way. He, 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 his, this slaughter, as we see it, it's captains, it's kings, it's mighty men, it's all men, it's free and slave, it's small and great. Isaiah the prophet said this, all nations before him, are as nothing. And he's talking about those that are rejecting God, those that are unrepentant. All the nations before him are as nothing, and they're counted by him less than nothing and worthless. Daniel the prophet said a similar thing. All the inhabitants of the earth, again, those that are rejecting God, they're reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? So understand, everybody who opposes Jesus at Armageddon, they're going to become bird food. That's it. End of story. 
Interestingly, by the way, do you know every year millions of birds migrate from Europe to Africa? What's their corridor, their main corridor? They fly over the Mediterranean Sea. They fly through Israel right through the Valley of Armageddon on their way to Africa. So we know that one day this million, millions of birds migrating are going to be getting the dinner bell and they're going to be feasting on the flesh of those who've rejected the Lord. Now, God deals swift judgment here. We see him take the beast and the false prophet and, and they are so wicked. They've engineered so much devastation. They go directly to the lake of fire. First time, by the way, the Bible talks about the lake of fire. There's other references to, uh, to, the, to men being judged and sent into a place of eternal torment and flames. We'll look at those. But this is the first direct reference to the lake of fire. And what we see here is the beast and the false prophet. They get a monopoly deal. It's like, you know, go directly to jail. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. They're going directly to this lake of fire. First reference is here. We're going to deal with it in more detail when we get into Revelation chapter 20. But for now, understand these two wicked leaders, they're going to be the first to arrive in the lake of fire, but they will certainly not be the last. Consider Jesus' words here in Matthew 25. He says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats and he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left And then he will also say to those on the left hand, depart from me, you cursed, here it is, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. People are like, oh, wait a minute, where's, you know, I thought Jesus was all about peace and love. What's what's all this talk about hell? Jesus had a lot to say about hell. Here's one of those places. And he says that there's a time coming, he's going to send people there. And he, may, and he says, look, it's prepared for the devil and his angels. Take something, take heart from that. Because God's desire for you, he's, he, he, he doesn't come out the gate saying, I want to send you to hell. He comes out the gate saying, I've done everything I can to save you. People say, how can a good God send people to hell? How can a loving God send people to hell? People send themselves to hell. God, God says, I desire that none should perish, but that all should come to everlasting life. He so desperately desires that. He sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross for your sins in your place. If you reject Jesus, then you go to hell by climbing over Jesus' dead body. Literally. He loves you that much. But Jesus says here, look, a day is going to come when he will separate the sheep from the goats. And he will say, guess what? you go to the place that was prepared for the devil and his angels, speaking of the third of the angels that fell with him. And, and if you reject Jesus, then there ain't no other place for you to go. There's only one other place that he's established that people can go if they want to be away from him. It's called hell. It's called the lake of fire. Jesus said in Matthew 13, the son of man will send out his angels and they'll gather out of his kingdom all things that offend And those who practice lawlessness will cast them into the furnace of fire and there will be wailing and there will be gnashing of teeth. Suffice it to say, look, you don't want to go there. You don't want to go there. We're going to deal with this again when we get to Revelation 20. We're going to look at this this thing called the great white throne judgment. But here's what you need to understand. That it is appointed unto men once to die and then to face judgment. And if you reject Jesus Christ, there is no other place that you can go but to the lake of fire. But listen, 
Today there is still time. Today there is still time. When, the second, when Christ comes, when the second coming of Christ, there ain't no more time after that. Then it's just all about wrath. Then it's just all about judgment. It's too late. But can I tell you that this life that we live, I know just from my former employment of being a paramedic, that there are lots of people who, who really don't know that, hey, today is my appointment with death. I pronounced a guy dead holding a coffee cup in his hand. I was reminded of it just last Friday night. I was taking Sherry over to U-Turn for Christ. Uh, she was doing worship over there. I got off on Highway 74, and at the off-ramp, when you get to the stoplight there, there was a guy that was, that was T-boned at that stoplight and had his coffee cup in his hand, in the front seat of his car, dead. And my, and my first thought, as I pull up, his radio's still playing, and he's now, he's, you know, Elvis has left the building, man. He's gone. And I go, whoa. I wonder if this guy even saw this thing coming. I mean, you know, and I was there quick. So I'm thinking 15 minutes ago, this guy was as alive as I am. A split second before it happened, he was alive as I was. And a lot of people, they live their life and they're like, well, you know what? God's a God of grace and love, whatever. Yeah, yeah, I'm just going to live however I live. And then at the last minute, I'll say the prayer. This guy didn't have a last minute. He didn't have time to say the prayer. I'm just telling you the facts of life. And we're looking at the second coming of Christ. By then it's too late. But listen, for that guy, it was too late too. Is it too late for you? Are you, are, are you living your life and just, continue, just taking for granted God's grace and not even giving a thought to the fact that, listen, God hates sin. He hates so much his son had to die for it. And he's going to reach a place where it's like, grace, grace, grace. All right, you're done. You're fresh out of grace. Now it's wrath. Now it's judgment. Well, with that in mind, look back at verse 14. I want to close looking at Jesus' companions. Jesus' companions, verse 14, says there that the armies in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. We know that this army is us. Jude, in Jude uh, chapter 1, verses 14 to 15, sheds light on this. He says, behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints. That's you and me. That's the body of Christ. That's the church. To execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have committed in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. It's the Lord who comes with his church to what? To execute judgment. God will judge sin because he's holy. He's righteous. And that holy and righteousness is not just, oh, I'm a God of love and grace. It's, uh, I'm also a God of righteousness. And if you reject my grace at a certain point, it's just about judgment. Now, we're looking at his companions. And so I want you to notice three things about being Jesus' companion and specifically about Jesus' commandment, command, uh, companions here in the second coming. Number one, they're clothed in, in white. They're clothed in white. God says this through the prophet Isaiah, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Listen, I ask you the question today, and that's not for you to answer to me, it's for you to answer to God. Are you clothed in white? 
Are you clothed in the righteousness of Christ today? This is not a do-good, try-harder clothing. This is a, Jesus, you died on the cross for my sin in my place. We partake of communion. The bread represents his body broken for us. The, the cup represents his blood shed on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. And when we partake of this, we're proclaiming his death till he comes. As believers, what we're doing is we're saying, Jesus, I'm remembering that you died for my sin. That somebody had to die and I'm thanking you that it's not me. You died, and I, am, I throw myself upon you. I grab you like a drowning man grabs, grabs that life preserver. It's your righteousness that I need because I got none of my own. Are you clothed in white today? Have you, have you cried out to the Lord and said, God, save me? Today, if you're in Christ, if you've done that, you're clothed in white. If you haven't, listen, it's not too late. You can do that today. I'll give you the invitation today, the opportunity today to cry out, to ask the Lord to cleanse you, to clothe you in white. That's the first thing I want you to notice. second thing I want you to notice is what, what are, what are Jesus' companions? Well, they're clothed in white, first of all. Secondly, they followed him. Can you see that? They followed him. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Do you follow Jesus? Would he say you follow him? John 12, 26, if anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servants will be also. If anyone serves me, him, my father will honor. Here's the third thing I want you to notice about his companions. Would you notice Jesus does all the fighting? This is what I want you to take away. This is the takeaway this week. I want you to take a walk with this. Jesus does all the fighting. Look, there's no mention of any kind of armor or weapon that this great army that he comes with brings with us. I mean, it doesn't, doesn't say that, that we come armed to the teeth. We're not best dressed in battle fatigues. We don't have some bandolier around our shoulders here with, with some kind of armament. What do we have? We're clothed in white. That's our armament. Jesus does all all the fighting. I'll close with this. Maybe you were with us when we went through 1 Samuel. But what comes to my mind is, is David fighting Goliath. And it's such a, a biblical story. Everybody, everybody remembers the story of David and Goliath. Basically, there's David. He's at home. He's watching the stuff. His brothers are out at the battle. And his dad sends him with some stuff. Hey, go take some supplies to your brothers. And he gets there. And what's he find? He finds Goliath fronting off the whole nation of Israel, all of their army. And everybody of the nation of Israel, all of their army, is quaking in their boats. They're all afraid. They're all afraid to engage the enemy. And David is outraged. He's incensed. And he says, who, what, who is this guy that's going to that's gonna defile the armies of the living God? Let me at him. And they're like, dude, you can't fight this guy. Like, he's been, you're a little kid. You're the runt of the litter. He's been killing people since he was a little kid. And David persuades him, no, man, I, like, I, somebody needs to put this guy out of my misery. Like, I'm, I'm going to go do it. And so we pick it up, the story, I'll put it on the screen for you. 1 Samuel 17, 38, Saul Here's this, and so Saul clothed David with his armor, and he put a bronze helmet on his head. He also clothed him with a coat of mail. David fastened his sword to his armor, and he tried to walk, for he had not, here's the key word, tested them. Keep that in mind. And David said to Saul, I cannot walk with these, for I have not, here it is, tested them. And so David took them off. What is David saying? 
Well, he hadn't tested them. The idea is, look, I'm not used to these things. What was David used to? He was used to being clothed in the righteousness of God. He was used to trusting God by faith. That's what he was used to. So what happened was when, and this came out in the argument saying, hey, David, you can't do it. This guy's been killing people since he was a little kid and you are a little kid. David said, hey, let me tell you what this little kid did. When I was tending my father's sheep and the lion came or the bear came, I didn't, I didn't have this armor on. I didn't have this coat of mail on. I didn't have this sword on. I had me and God on. That's what I had. And I fought and I overcame the lion. I fought and I overcame the bear. Why? Because I was clothed in righteousness. I was clothed in faith in my God and he took care of me. Fast forward. So gets into the battle. He's going up against him. He ain't clothed in nothing but just trusting in God by faith. And here's what he says right before he kills Goliath and chops off his head. 1 Samuel 17, verse 45, Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword, with a spear, and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you've defiled. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. And then he continues in a few verses later, Then all this assembly shall know that the Lord does not save with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. What battle are you in today? What battle are you fighting today? Listen, just as true with the second coming of Christ with his church as it is today. Listen, Christ comes back. He fights the battle when he comes back. We're just with him. We're, vic- we're victorious in him. Today in the battle, you're victorious because you're in Christ. That's it. Final set. And today the question is we closed. Are you in him or not? Are you the main course, or are you the main guest?